We've been seeing over the last several weeks that at its heart, in its essence, Christianity is for the life of the world. The work of God in Christ on his cross and in his resurrection is for all the world. Not just for individuals, but for whole societies and for creation itself. And the great centerpiece of Christianity is Easter. Easter. It's the pivot point of all of human history. The first day of spring for all of creation. Our society wants to tell us the pivot point occurred several hundred years ago. Everything after that moment we call enlightenment. Everything before that moment, dark ages. Now that's an ideology. That's a view of what makes the world better. But as Christians, we say, no, that's not the pivot. No, that's not where everything suddenly came into light. We reject that reading of history. We say that the pivot point of history is Easter. Easter is the first day of spring for all creation. Not Descartes sitting in front of his fireplace, cogito ergo sum. I think, therefore, I am. Not the arrival of science, not Copernican's revolution. But the first day of spring for all of creation is Easter. This is the Christian confession. That on the first Easter, the world awakened to a new and unexpected horizon. Jesus had punched a hole in the wall separating life from death. And he had climbed back through that hole. He had climbed back through in life. And from that day onward, death would not have to be the last word for any of us. We don't have to look at death as final. Through the resurrection of Jesus, God was beginning to make all things new. But how? How is God doing this? How is God making everything sad come untrue? Well, we've been seeing over the last several weeks, through his work... In us, God invites people to respond to his Easter victory in two ways. By one, believing it, which can be quite difficult. 500 years ago, virtually impossible not to believe this in the Western world. Now, for many people, it's practically impossible to believe this. That's the first response God asks of us, is to believe To actually believe that the world turned a corner on that first Easter. Second, the second response God asks of us is to join him in implementing the Easter victory through our families, through our work, through our pursuit of justice and knowledge and beauty. That's what we've seen over the last several weeks. If you weren't with us, you you can go online, you can read the sermons or listen to them where we, we show how Easter links up to justice, knowledge, beauty, families, work. This morning we look at one last aspect of how God is pushing the Easter victory out into the world. How God is at work in this world making everything sad come untrue. The final issue, the final category is this. It is the church. The church. But to show you the role of the church 
in, in the life of the world, we have to back up a bit and start at the beginning and get the big picture. The story of the Bible, and the Bible's a story, I mean, after all, the first line is, in the beginning, which is a big clue that starting a story, not, a, not an essay, not a treatise, but a story. The story of the Bible is the story of how God is dealing with evil. It's the story of what God is doing for the life of the world. And the heart of it all is Jesus Christ. In and through Jesus, this one true creator God has taken charge of the world. He's grabbed the world, grasped the world in a new way to sort it out. To fill it with his glory and with his justice and with his beauty. Just like he always promised he would. And so in and through Jesus, the ancient sickness that's crippled the whole world and humans with it has been cured at last. So new life can rise up. So Jesus is the unavoidable, irreducible, non-negotiable way in which the creator is healing this world. But not just Jesus in the cross and the resurrection. As Christians, we would say that it's all about Jesus, that he's at the center. But we need to make sure we understand what we mean by Jesus. We're not talking about Jesus only in his personal body in the cross and the resurrection. We're also talking about what Jesus is continuing to do. Having won the victory on the cross and the resurrection, Jesus is continuing to work in our world. But how? How is Jesus still at work? After all, I mean, he's not walking around the dusty paths of Palestine. There is no physical body you can go bump up into and say, oh, that's Jesus Christ. He's ascended into heaven. And yet I'm saying that he's for the life of this material world. So how is that? How is Jesus, how is his body, how is the person Jesus continuing to work in this world to heal it? Well, to answer that, we've got to understand something about who Jesus is. We need to know that when the Bible talks about Jesus, it speaks of Jesus in three dimensions. First of all, it talks about his personal body. Second of all, his Eucharistic body. And third, his corporate body. Now, it's going to get kind of uh, serious here for a minute. Just stay with me and... It's good to think. You do it at school. You do it at work. We can do it at church. Look at it this way. When Jesus walked on this earth, God himself was here in person with a body. You could hear him. You could see him. You could touch him. Listen to 1 John chapter 1. All right. That which was from the beginning, talking about God, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was made manifest to us that we have seen and heard over and over in these three verses. John is trying to wrap our minds around this Amazing idea that God took on flesh and there was this period of time when you could see God, you could touch God, you could hear God. He was manifested in a body. And it's through this body, through his personal body, that God accomplished the massive victory of Easter. 
Hebrews chapter 10 verse 10. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. His body mattered. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Okay, so God took on this body. You could see him, you could hear him, you could touch him. And he did this amazing thing. He he won this incredible victory for the life of the world. And then he ascended into heaven with his body. But before he did that, he instituted a ritual. The Eucharist, communion, mass, uh, Lord's Supper, whatever you want to call it. He instituted this ritual And in this ritual, we, like the original disciples, analogous, we get to see and hear and touch his body. Even though his body's in heaven, listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless. You'll see that happen a little later in the service. I'm going to pray these prayers over this stuff up here. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it, the cup, not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Now, this is huge. It's all over the Bible. But look, if you believe that God used matter to make a difference in this world, in the body and blood of Jesus Christ, he's continuing to use matter. It's not a shift in logic. Now, there's a lot of debate about how this actually is the body and blood of Christ. I'm not talking about how. If you're familiar with all the Christian lingo, I'm not talking about the fights between the Lutherans and the Catholics and the Baptists. I'm just saying that Paul says when we do this ritual, this thing we do participates in Christ's body and blood. Now, that's what we call the Eucharistic body of Christ. One more verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 17. Paul goes on to say, because there is one bread. Now he knows that churches all over the world are using different loaves of bread, but he just said, when we do this particular ritual, all these different loaves participate in the one bread, the one body. Then he says, because there's one bread, there's one body of Christ. We who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. What he's telling us here is that those who receive the one body of Christ in the Eucharist are made into the body of Christ. And what body is that? Well, over and over in the New Testament, we're told the church is the body of Christ. So, the New Testament talks about the body of Christ in these three dimensions. Now, look, I know this is complex, but that doesn't mean it's not true. You sit through many math classes, many science classes, where your misunderstanding doesn't mean it's not true. Now, I'm not trying to push against you. I'm just saying sometimes we're unaccustomed to going to church and hearing things that take a while to sort out. This is a deep mystery. I'm not trying to simplify it. In the Bible, there are these three dimensions to the body of Christ. The personal body, the Eucharistic body, and the corporate body. 
The church is the body of Christ. Now, there's many, many places it says this. Here's one example. Colossians chapter 1, verse 24. Now, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake and in my flesh. This is Paul talking. I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body. That is the church. So the Bible conceives of Christ at times personal body, at times Eucharistic body, at times corporate body. Putting it all together. Through his personal body on the cross and in his resurrection, Jesus accomplished salvation and instituted a meal that founded the church. Now his personal body is invisibly in heaven And the church gathers and unites together as his corporate body around his Eucharistic body. Now this is obviously deep waters and there are lots of nuances and details. And we should spend lots of time fleshing this all out and understanding it more and more and more. But for this morning what we need to see is this point. The church is the body of Christ. Not just as a metaphor. The the church fathers called this the totus Christus, the total Christ. He is the head, we are the body. All together, this is the body of Christ. And this is why, this point, this is my main point for the morning. This is why the church is the body of Christ. This is why throughout her history, the church continues to be the place where Christ reaches out to the world in love. He's carrying on his labor for the life of the world. The church throughout her history is a place where Christ continues to reach out to the world. The church is the site of his active presence. Wherever the church goes, there is the power and the love and the life and the joy that was manifested in the personal body of Jesus Christ. The personal body of Christ was the once for all unique manifestation of God in the world. And the corporate body of Christ, the church, is the continuing manifestation of God in Christ for the life of the world. Now this is really deep waters. But listen, you, many of you know this on an experiential level. In 2002, my wife and I sold everything we owned so we could move to England and I could study. I moved over two weeks ahead. Everything we own, pots, pans, forks, knives, all that stuff you get when you're a Christian at a wedding shower and your dad's a pastor, which is a lot of stuff. Spencer, you're going to be loaded. Just wait. All the, be nice to these people because they're going to give you stuff. Now, all of that stuff we sold. We sold our house. We backed our car up in the driveway at a garage sale. We sold the car. We reduced everything down to these few suitcases so that I could go to England and study. Very nice of my wife. I moved over two weeks in advance with these two huge suitcases. I, didn't, I knew one person, um, which was a, a bachelor, Craig Bartholomew. Some of you have met him. And I, I landed on a Friday. I checked into a, a bed and breakfast type place Friday night, Saturday night. Sunday I went to church. And I'm sitting there and some, some Christians lean over and say, obviously you're not from here. You know, my um, obvious accent. And uh, do you have a place to stay? I said, No. And they said, well, we have a room in our house that we rent out to international students. Would you like to? So they, I moved in with, with them. And um, for two weeks, they introduced me to the town of Cheltenham. They showed me how to read the newspaper, how to find where to rent flats because we needed to rent a flat, um, an apartment. 
They told me, don't go to that part of town. You know, go to this part of town. Don't talk to those people. Talk to these people. All that kind of stuff. And suddenly, the church was my savior. Some of you college students, you know what I'm talking about. How many of you, through the church, is God just overwhelmingly blessed? Look, there are two dominant realities in my life. My family and the church. And I know there's this mythology going around that the church is an ogre. And I know some of you maybe have been hurt by the church. But I guarantee there are ten stories for every story of tragedy. There are ten stories in this room of the beautiful bride of Christ that has overwhelmingly blessed our lives with joy and goodness. There is this narrative being told by a secular society that wants to put the church in its place. But you take the church out of the world and you take out the push against slavery, the push for women's rights, the, 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 insta, the, uh, the invention of hospitals. You take out the church from this world and there will be a gust of wind leaving the room. You take the church out from Harrisonburg. You would be overwhelmed. At all of the good that is done in this city through the church. The church is the body of Christ given as a gift for the life of the world. But how? How does the church do this? How does the church actually pull it off? How does it actually bless the world? How do we, the church of the incarnation, here in Harrisonburg, how do we live as the body of Christ for the life of the world? What if To figure this out, you need to wrap your minds around something else. We need to think of the church in two dimensions. The church as an organism and the church as an institution. By organism, I'm talking about all those wonderful images in the New Testament where the church is compared to a tree with spreading branches that give shelter to all the world. Where Christ is the vine and we're the branches. And most of all, like we've seen in the last few minutes, that amazing notion of the church as the body of Christ. Tree, vine, body. These are all living Organic metaphors. They show us that when it comes to being the church, there is this hidden power, this inner power that flows from God into us, and it's organic. And it and it grows through us. It's not institution, it's spirit, it's water, it's tree, it's vine, it's body. When you're in Christ, in the body of Christ, there is this surging, billowing power to forgive and pursue kindness. A power that convicts you when you step away and gives you fresh moral energy to pull yourself up and to improve in virtue. But there are other metaphors in the Bible for the church. There's a whole cluster of organic metaphors. But there are these other metaphors drawn not from nature, but drawn from the work of human hands. In this series of metaphors, the church is not compared to a body, but a house, something we build. Not something that happens naturally, but something we make happen. The church not only grows mysteriously, organically, it is built in obvious ways by human hands. So when we think of the church, we need to remember the Bible gives a full range of metaphors. The organism of the church is the nourishing life of the church that flows directly from the Spirit of God. But we can't take that for granted. The life of the church comes from God and it is something that we build. Eden was planted by God and then God told Adam and Eve, cultivate it. It's both gift of God, work of our hands. My garden grows. 
by the organic power of water and soil and sun. It's amazing, isn't it? I put these little seeds in the ground a few weeks ago, and now there's these little sprouts. Carrots are coming up. The beans, they're glorious. The potatoes are overwhelming the beans. I put them all too close. It's just amazing, right? Sun, water, dirt. But it's my hands and the hands of my wife and children that prepared the fertile soil. Pulls the weeds, prunes the plants, guide the branches of the tomato plants onto the trellis. It's both. It's organism and organization. The church is an organism. It is also an institution. It's also an organization. And they must never be separated. We are the church. These people in this room. We are the church. And this building is the church. Can't separate them. Our programs and our policies and our officers. The institution. It is the church. If we were to keep reading in the book of Acts after the passage that um, Mary Beth read to us. If we were to keep reading, we would see that as soon as the church was born, as the answer to Babel, by the way. Not going to go into it this morning, but this is the two two of the great bookends in the Bible. Pentecost reverses the curse of Babel, right? Babel scattered through languages. Pentecost healed through one language. God doesn't let the world end at Babel. Through Christ, Pentecost. And if we were to keep reading, we would see that as soon as the church was born in Acts chapter 2, by the power of God, the apostles immediately began to inject into the young plant organization. They arranged it. They regulated it. They included and excluded. They, they sought to give form to the life that, so it could, that life could be preserved. Some people want all the spiritual power without the institution. Away with the church, away with preachers, away with tithing, away with the buildings, away with the programs. Just give me Jesus and relationships and let me be a hippie for Christ. Anti-institution. Let's just be organic. Other people, they want the opposite. They want to maintain the organization but pay so little attention to the life and holiness and relationships and power. But you can't do either. You can't separate the organism from the organization. Try growing a garden like that. Right? Try to organize but never put dirt in there or water in there or seed in there or sun in there. Or or try to just throw the seeds on the ground and then not organize it at all. That What happens to your tomatoes by the end of the summer, Aaron? Right? You mow them down. Right? Blight. Disease. People want the organization. Some people do, but they don't want the holiness and the life. You can't separate these. You can't separate, just like you can't separate you from your body. Right? That's an impossibility. Your life, your life force and your body, they go together. You don't have a physical body. You are a physical body. It's not as if the ghostly inner me uses the tool of my body like a microphone to speak to my wife and the ghostly inner Janelle uses the tool of her body like a, like a satellite to hear me. No, then we'd just be two disembodied ghosts alone and lonely. So if you've been neglecting the institutional church, know this, you are neglecting the body of Christ. And if you have been neglecting the organism of the church, know this, you are neglecting the body of Christ. 
There are many manifestations of Christ's body here in Harrisonburg. Many churches, whatever one you're a part of, don't separate the organization from the institution. If you're a part of church, be confident that when you're a part of our church, this building program we're going on, that's church work. Every bit as much as investing in relationships. You can't separate these things out. The money we're asking of our members for, for, for our budget and for our building, this is church work. And when we gather in small groups and focus on relationships, this is church work. And when we come together on Sunday to worship, this is church work. We are the church and what we do is church. Jump in and embrace it all. Don't just love me for my body. I got a mind too. And don't just love me for my mind or my personality. I got a body too. Right? It all goes together. You can't separate it out. Do you know how frustrated I get when people just love me for my body? (laughs) Or just love me for my mind? It's a whole package. Are you trying to slice and dice the body of Christ? Pushing away the institutional stuff, the membership. I don't believe in membership stuff. It's not in the Bible. Well, there's a whole lot of things we do that aren't in the Bible. Because we live 2,000 years after the Bible. We, had to, we have to figure this stuff out. So do you pick and choose? I like this part of the institution and not that part. And you push away this and you push away that. The programs, the building fund. Or maybe you're into all the institutional stuff. But the mysticism, the prayer, the holiness. Well, you just kind of smile and wink at that. Say the creed with your fingers crossed. The church is a gift of God for the life of the world. And it does this by being the actual living body of Christ. It does this as an organization and an organism. And one last thing. So think of the church as the body of Christ. Think of the body of Christ in two dimensions. Interlocking, overlapping, can't separate institution and organism. And think of the way we do church... In two dimensions too. The way we are the church. Not only as an organism and an institution. But also the ways we go about doing church. Is two ways also. We do church gathered. And we do church scattered. We are the church when we're gathered for worship and discipleship. And we are still the church when we're scattered. For work and family and vacation and school. And all those things we do when we're not in the same room together. The church gathered for worship. This is the church. The primary reason we go to church is to worship God. The Lord wants us to gather as his people in order to acknowledge together. This is what we're doing this morning. We're acknowledging that he alone is worthy of our worship. Gathering in the presence of God for the purpose of praise and adoration. This is our worship. Now, the Bible gives us a really neat way to think about what we're doing here as the church gathered. It tells us to think about it like a wedding feast. Now, now to, to understand this, let's back up just a minute. The story the Bible tells begins with creation. The whole cosmos springing into life. And the fecundity of the universe concentrated in the Garden of Eden. Where, where there are springs of water gushing forth. The trees are bearing every kind of fruit imaginable. And in the middle of it all is a wedding. God creates Eve. He brings her to Adam. 
And the two become one. It's lush and green and steamy. After all, they were just wearing their birthday suits. And it is absolutely beautiful. The Bible starts with the wedding. Then, of course, what follows is the epic story of of tragedy. Everything sad comes true. Through sin and death. And eventually, at the right time, Jesus Christ shows up to set the world right through his death and resurrection and ascension. And then, as we keep reading the Bible, we come to the consummation of this glorious, unimaginable story. In the final chapters of Revelation, the end of the Bible, we come full circle, and once again, we're at a wedding. Once again, there's fresh water flowing in the river of life, and trees bearing fruit for, for the, of every kind imaginable for the healing of the nations. And in the middle of all of this, in the last chapters of the Bible, is a wedding feast. And this time, instead of just two people in a garden temple, there's a great multitude representing every tribe and language and tongue. And the groom is Jesus. The victorious king and the bride is his church, the people of God. And listen to these verses from Revelation 19. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. The Bible starts in a garden with a wedding. And it ends in a city with a garden and a wedding. Now I've been to a lot of parties over the years. But nothing beats a really good wedding. There's even running around on YouTube, David Cooper, at a wedding a few years ago, doing some kind of stanky leg move. It's, do y'all know the stinky leg? Anyway, it's amazing. You should YouTube David Cooper. And you know what? We all need to grow up and learn how to do that. There are these moments at weddings when it's all just right. All of our desires, our highest desire ought to be to attending this great eternal wedding feast to end all wedding feasts. The wedding feast that every wedding is just hors d'oeuvres for. That's why we keep doing the same thing here week after week, Sunday after Sunday. In this room, we sit at Jesus' feet to listen to the story told once again. We open our hearts to him in song and prayer and with our tithes and offerings. We remember and proclaim the story in our creed and in our Eucharistic prayers. And then, like at the wedding we're going to go to for Ben and Amy in a few months, then we feast, we eat, we drink We eat and drink together, remembering the Lord's death and resurrection, anticipating his return, remembering, living, rejoicing the hope that is to come. What does it look like when God pours himself out for us and we offer ourselves, pouring ourselves back to him? It looks like a wedding feast. When we gather each week, this is a preview. It's not uncommon for a pastor to sometimes talk to somebody as they're leaving the room on Sunday, and somebody will say to me something like this I love church. I wish Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday were this 
good and relaxing and restful and encouraging. But now I've got to go back to the real world. To which the best response I know of is, oh no, this is the real world. Which are stepping back into his shadows. And we're laboring for the whole world to be like this. My children walk into this room and they are loved. And they are known and they are cared for. And their souls learn to worship their creator. We gather each week. This is a preview. And it should be a great witness to our neighbors. They should see when we worship the choice between the empty promises of modernity. And the intoxicating joy of the bride. This is a preview party of what is yet to come in the marriage supper of the Lamb. To worship God is to acknowledge His kingship. His lordship. It is to bow in the presence of his authority. And this should have implications for how we live our daily lives. When we leave church each Sunday, we we are under marching orders by the king. The sanctuary, this building, the church building. It's essential. But you don't have to go into a church to do something for the king and his kingdom. The church is a kingdom place. This building is a kingdom room. Christ rules in this room in a special way. In this worshiping space, we encounter through our worship the king. But this king doesn't let us stay here. He sends us out every week. And when we leave the four walls of this building, we are going out into the king's domain. So on Sunday, the church goes to church. And on Monday, the church goes to work. But it's the church. The church goes to church on Sunday and then the church on Monday goes to work and to family and to vacation and to all wherever your week takes you. But make no mistake about it. When you leave this room and step back into ordinary lives, it is the church that is stepping into the unglorious ordinary of being church in our homes and workplaces. And so as we scatter... That's the other dimension. The church gathered, the church scattered. As we scattered, we are the hope of God scattered for the life of the world. And it's in the everyday mundane demands of life that we work out what it means to be the church. Remember the first chapter of the Bible shows us God is a worker. In the beginning, God created. That's God at work. And he works for six days and then he concludes his week with the Sabbath. A six-day work week concluding in worship frames the entire spirituality of creation. And then in Genesis 2, man and woman are placed in the garden as workers employed at task assigned by their maker. So in the very first pages of the Bible, work is the primary way we live out our relationship to God. Children at play, that is their work. And it is practice for adult work. We play our way into adult work. Our games as children are apprenticeships. The spiritual life begins, it seriously begins when we get a job. This is why so many Christians fail when they leave childhood and adolescence, whether it's at 18 or 21. Because if you think that your spiritual life is really getting traction and you haven't gotten a job yet, you, you're, you're wrong. Everything before your job is an apprenticeship because it is your job, your work, your mundane working life. This is the primary way our relationship, our spirituality with God works out. 
Work is our spirit-anointed participation in God's work. It is the way the church goes to work in the world. Every Christian is in holy orders. Now, this is the reason that the church of the incarnation has to stay simple in terms of not having many programs. Because your work matters. Because when you leave this room, you don't stop being the church. Because when you show up at your job, it's not as if, oh, spiritual is a church and now I start my everyday life. No, the church gathered and the church scattered. We've got to stay simple so that you can be free to go to work. So that you can be free to live out God's calling on your life through your family, your vocation, your pursuit of knowledge and wonder. All of these areas that we've talked about over the last few weeks. When we leave this place, we are the church. Because the nature of the church, being a people defined by the Spirit, our work cannot be disconnected from the church. We are the church. This means we are the body of the living Christ, a gift for the life of the world. And we do this, we live out our nature as the church, as an organism, and as an organization. We do it when we're gathered for worship, and when we're scattered for work and play. This is Pentecost. Happy birthday. Let's pray.